from Melbourne and Minneapolis. This is for Christ's sake. After 17, there was a long, expectant silence. Carl looked from Pirani to sunglasses and then to the other members of the group. He was trying, very quickly, to decide how to play this new game. Pirani was lying, but the Italian had a disturbing confidence, an unshakable calm that Carl couldn't understand. Pirani was obviously a member of this group, but not an important one. They had started without him, and perhaps Carl could take advantage of the fact. He turned to sunglasses and said, he's lying. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Hugh, my co-host's name is Hunter, I suppose, and this show is, for Christ's sake, Mm. we are still reading uh, Scratch One somehow, the book that never ends, uh, the second novel that Michael Crichton ever published um, under his pseudonym, John Lang. Uh, And what do we have with us? What do you have with you? I got a piping uh, tall glass. I guess piping always implies like hot, but it's not hot. It does. That's what I was wondering. <laughs> <laughs> a tall glass of uh, a blood orange screwdriver. I got some salt and video chips. Okay. And I have uh, a tiny, tiny glass of uh, blood red port and a modest amount of hard pretzels in a wooden bowl. So it looks like a bar snack. Now, um... I think we're both feeling a little fatigued at this point uh, by uh, this particular effort of Michael Crichton's. Um, yeah. Neither of us are huge, huge fans of this story so far. So in the interest of uh, spicing things up, um, I have a, a set a set of cards here uh, known known in the business as uh, oblique strategies. <laughs> I forgot that you had, I, I totally forgot that you had a set of those. <laughs> I'm going to draw a card at random and see if it uh, enlivens this podcast because I'm out of ideas already. So let's have a look. Let's have a look. The most important thing is the thing most easily forgotten. Hmm. Does that help? Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right, forget that. <laughs> Moving on. Well, thanks for nothing. <laughs> fuck, fuck you, Brian. You know. <laughs> Uh, all right, let's let's try and forget this fucking book. Okay, I, I, I agree with you, Hugh, um, that this book has been a slog for the most part, but I think we both had a pang of enjoyment, perhaps, of, of possible improvement, right, based on the uh, last, the way the last chapter did, which is, I, I thought, a decently cleverly executed twist. So we we probably should we, we probably should catch catch everyone up with uh, where we're at in this story and what did in fact happen at the end of the last chapter. Mm. 
Well, let's hear it. I thought you volunteered. <laughs> um. All right. No, no, I got, I got, right, it. Right. I got it. I got it. I got it. All right, go. Okay. So Roger Carr is this um, irritatingly uh, childish um, moron, thirty-seven-year-old moron, mm-hmm. uh, who is sent to Europe in order to secure a property for his employer, who is a governor of some sort, uh, the specifics of which we're not privy to. And uh, en route, he gets mistaken by a variety of parties for a legendary assassin man named Morgan, who has come to uh, facilitate the successful completion of a business transaction, which is supposed to occur uh, between the Israeli government and uh, Swedish or Norwegian or some sort of Scandinavian arms dealer. And the uh, CIA and the British intelligence and um, the French uh, intelligence also all want this to succeed. And they are opposed by a shadowy group of uh, French Algerians who, uh, for reasons that I'm not entirely certain of, wish to disrupt this particular meeting. Um, because there's sort of a like, stereotypical anti-Israel uh, plot that is attached to the motive, right? The only thing that Crichton explains about anyone's motives uh, for foiling this arms deal is that um, the, the Muslim countries in the region do not want Israel to uh, get hold of military supplies. And I, I feel like I've become less certain of this fact. Is, is Lisao supposed to be someone who is of Algerian stock? Or is he a French person who, uh, who was born and like, raised in Algeria? Which there were quite a few million, I, I, if I understand correctly. Yes. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure if it was ever explained adequately. Because clearly his name is Lee Sal, so... I, I, I seem to remember something early on about his stock. But... His, swarthy, his swarthy complexion is obviously the source of all his evil. I, I thought it went a bit further than just describing his complexion, but I could be wrong. I really don't remember. Who cares? I'm not going back. No, me neither. <laughs> if you really want to know, maybe listen to one of the early episodes of the podcast. <laughs> um, it still doesn't change the fact that it's pretty racist, but, you know. Uh, that's great for you, I guess. So, basically, he's been mistaken for Morgan, and the associates try to kidnap him and sort of fail to do so. Um, the last couple of chapters, it sort of is upward together to divide. Uh, Carr successfully meets up with um, Peranini, Perani, Perani, <laughs> who uh, sell is is gonna sell the villa that he sells the villa. He also hooks up with this uh, hot dancer named Ann Chitterton, who is apparently the love of his life. Crittenden. Uh, I don't think so. And um, yes, despite uh, neither him or Ann having much of the way of uh, personality, I think. <laughs> well, I guess they have something in common then. That they're boring. Yeah. <laughs> that they're dullards. They're both hot. They're hot dullards. Yeah, yeah. Two things in common. Um, so, uh, anyway, as I was saying, uh, Carr has... Uh, the last chapter ended in, in a little bit of a shock where Anne has seemingly betrayed Carr and delivered him to the uh, base of the associates. Carr is... Because uh, his nose is broken. And... The depths of him are plumbed for information about, and they're basically trying to determine what, if he if he is or is not um, the this Morgan character who we've seen absolutely none of except for one brief encounter. 
Uh, and I'm sure this novel is going to end with him like coming and killing everyone, and then Anne and him escaping together, and that's it. Mm-hmm. So uh, the thing that sort of gave us a little jolt of excitement last time is that there is a uh, maybe twist is too strong of a word, but there is a larger conspiracy at play here that we were not privy to. I think, in that um, Parati comes in uh, to Carr's like pseudo torture session. And is like, what? I remember. I, I don't know who this guy is. He didn't buy my villa. Uh, like I said, there's a, a possible spark of hope that was lit during that uh, scene. At least I felt that way. Uh, would you say that that spark uh, was successfully able to become uh, a fire that uh, ignited your interest in this novel? Or was it immediately diffused and Ranger doll. <laughs> or somewhere in between. Bang goes the gun. A man falls. Scratch one. Bad prose. Good fun. Hot sex. Scratch one. I think Crichton uh, fairly swiftly extinguishes that particular spark in this chapter. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, we do get we do get uh, a colourful death scene, so yeah, there's a, there's a bit of excitement. It's not entirely a um, what's the word for a thing that doesn't live up to the thing? <laughs> what are any words anymore? <laughs> Disappointment. Uh, no, I mean, kind Crazy of climax. A, a letdown. I don't know. Let's just say letdown. But you know, I just wanted to just wanted to say just wanted to say that it's kind of like a music that car has been mistaken. Um, for this fellow called Morgan, when it is Israel that wants Morgan. <laughs> Moving on. Nice. Been sleeping on that one this whole time. Finally, it came to me while you were uh, recounting the plot. Good. Just had to insert that in before we proceeded. Mm. Like a needle of uh, whatever. Genius. You... No, a needle of um, estrogen. What does he insert into? <laughs> estrogen. <laughs> Not estrogen. Ether. Ether, that's it. Alright, so yeah. So so Pirani has has denied any knowledge of um Carr and contradicted his story. And uh it, it's looking hopeless. Lucille's like, well, you know, obviously you're you're going to be a, a troublesome entity for us, so we'll need to take care of you, right? Hmm. It's like, oh no, what's going to happen? They're going to kill Carla halfway through this book. <laughs> wow, that would be great. Wouldn't it? And then we just follow Lissau. <laughs> well, I got to say, I kind of I turned around with Lissau in the, this chapter and the next one. He doesn't seem like such a bad guy. <laughs> yeah, seems, seems all right. <laughs> I mean, certainly, uh, you know, he seems a little... Um, there's something more driving him than the pure greed and horniness of Roger Carr, you know? Mm. <laughs> I mean, even if I don't agree, well, maybe I do agree with his uh, point of view, because, you know, uh, at this point, when was this book published? Like, 68, right? Or 66? 66, 67, something like that. When did Algeria win its independence? <laughs> Good question. It wouldn't have been far off then, actually. Yeah. Uh, 62. Right, so go. I gotta say, my uh, sympathies are uh, not with the uh, imperialist French government, uh, nor the imperialist British one, nor the imperialist American one. So, and you know what? Uh, I mean, he doesn't really seem to have done that much bad stuff. I, mean, I guess he did torture that one guy, but 
uh, that was kind of gross. But the, the show the American consulate like torturing someone too. So I don't understand what the big That's deal true. Is. That's true. So yeah, they they reach the end of this interrogation. Pirani has contradicted uh, what what Carr has uh, professed to be true, and um, Lusau has said something that suggests that they're going to dispose of Carr mm. as a result, right? <gasps> but what happens, Hugh? Does does he die? Does the book come to a premature end? Well, he he instructs his uh, faithful yet uh, breathtakingly incompetent German hitman, Brower, to do the honours. Mr. Ernst Brower, as we learn. And he steps forward, seemingly to dispose of Mr. Carr, but what happens instead? He fucking kills Perari! <laughs> well, he, he, um, he grabs Perani and he's about to slit his throat, but Lissau stops him. <gasps> he's like, no, I want to make this more painful. And that's when he injects him with the ether. And then uh, R.I.P. Pirani. Yep, he convulses about. Um, it's going to be a painful, slow death that takes hours. Um, he's having some sort of fit, and they take him out on the lawn to just die eventually. And uh, then Lissell's like, well, that takes care of that. Thanks, Mr. Carr, for your help. We've, we've learnt that Pirani was a bad egg. And uh, I wasn't actually sure about this because at one point, Carr says something to Pirani that I thought was like an intentional strategy on his part where he says, oh, you were going to buy the villa and you initially asked it to be paid into like a Geneva account or something, but I wanted to do things by the books. So I was wondering if he was making that up to make Pirani sound more dodgy as if he wanted to pocket the money for himself if he was somehow involved in this larger organization. Right. I also I also thought that was strange, but I didn't read it as such. I just I just couldn't remember if that was something that they had discussed earlier. So I was like, oh. Yeah, because I don't remember them discussing anything about that at all, and I don't think they did. So there must be a reason why Crichton decided to include it in this particular sequence. Yeah, you might you might be right, but it's not very well executed if that is a strategy. It might not be a strategy. It might just be what tips um, Lissau off that mm. Pirani was was doing something underhand. You know, that could have been it, even if. Car wasn't aware of it. Like it might have actually happened. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Doesn't matter. Who cares? Yep, that's my point of view. But I guess that sort of uh, proves that we were wrong because we we both had sort of predicted that uh, Bauer was going to be the uh, traitor, but seems like not. Yeah, maybe he could still be. So Lissau says, uh, "We are forever in your debt, Mister Car. How can we ever repay you?" And Car's like, "Well, give me a drink and send me back to my hotel. I'll be fine." Uh huh. And uh, does that happen? Does he get the uh, drink? He does get the, he does get the drink. Does get the drink. Good. Well, he gets a drink. I don't know if that's the drink he necessarily wanted, but Lisa was like, "Here, have some vodka." It doesn't have give you a hangover. And Carl's like, "Okay." And then what? Instead of being transported back to his hotel, he is uh, not transported at all. Really, he Lisa was like, "We'll go to your hotel and get all your um, clothes and stuff, and you can just hang out here for a couple of days." Yeah. Um, and uh, then, uh, yeah, that happens. Uh, <laughs> um, we Sal performs surgery on Carr's nose to uh, fix it up. And he takes a uh, epidural of uh, pain, you know, stuff, and then uh, sent off into the sleep space. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if, if Crichton is trying to be suggestive here. Mm. This was That was the impression I got. Um, because, of, and, of what? and it might be revealed that, that more happened here than 
it appears. Mm. Because what happens is Carl goes goes to the room that he's been assigned in LaSalle's mansion. Yeah. Lissau goes there and says, look, I'll take care of your nose now. Mm. Strips off his shirt, right? And then goes, maybe this will be better if you're asleep. And then sedates him. Yeah, there could be a possibility that he put something else on him. And then he wakes up and, you know, his nose has been healed. Oh, it's in the process of being healed. He expresses surprise that it feels better than, than he would have thought it would feel. Yeah. Um, so maybe it wasn't broken and maybe Lissau did something else, or maybe there's a, a, a suggestion that he took advantage of him in his unconscious shirtless <laughs> state. Uh, I didn't really get that vibe. I just thought he was taking the shirt off so he wouldn't get blood on it, but, you know. Wouldn't put it past uh, Mr. Lang, would you? Uh, I would not. Um, yeah, so what happens? Carl wakes up, he's feeling good, feeling better at least. Uh, and then I sort of blocked this part out. <laughs> Um, then he goes, hang, he hangs around the grounds, right? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Ogles a uh, maid. They ogle each other, but yeah. Hmm. The maid has met him for like the blink of an eye just to deliver whatever, a message or something. Mm. And already she is jealous of Car and Anne. Hmm. <laughs> That's just how much of a man Car is. Yeah. Uh, so then he goes and has he has breakfast with Lissau. He has breakfast with Lissau. Lissau leaves pretty quickly. And this gives him a commandment, which is, you can go on the grounds as much as you want, but you must never leave. Yeah. It's like the, it's like the Hotel California. Well, he's like, you can leave, but there's a massive electrified fence and the guards have been instructed to stop you. So do what you want, you know. But you'll die if you leave. That's basically yeah. what did you get some uh, Goldfinger uh, feeling from this? Any stock Bond villain, really. Well, not not in terms of, I mean, the specific, like, Goldfinger plot. I don't remember the specific Goldfinger plot. I mean, it's been, it's been so long since I've seen it, but basically he goes to, like, Goldfinger's villa and, like, half the movies him just, like, hanging out, like, running around as, like, a captive of Goldfinger. But that's, like, every Bond film. <laughs> that's not true. That's Dr. No as well. He's a captive of Dr. Dr. No. Dr. No is like that. But it's, it's, it's very similar in that it's, like, this, like, nice villa. That's what, I, that's what I mean. Like, Dr. No is, like, this weird, like, underground base, you know? Yeah, but it's kind of nice. Yeah, but it's, like, an under, and he's, like, he's like it's, like, not this. It's, like, this similar level of, of prisoner where you can, like, wander around and do stuff, you know? That is, like, it happens so often. I reckon if we looked into yeah, it, we'd it? find so many examples. No way. No way. <laughs> I've seen, like, all the Bond films, man. Me too. It's, I think except for Thunderball. I think it's the only one that I haven't seen, but I've heard that one's really bad, so. I'm pretty sure I've seen them all at some point or another. Mm, except for, I haven't seen uh, Honor, Honor Majesty's Secret Service. I've seen parts of it. I've seen, like, maybe 30% of it. It took a long time for me to see that in full. I only saw it in full, like, last year, maybe. I feel like it's one that doesn't really get played as often on, like, cable, so... No, because it's the anomaly. Even though it's it yeah. frequently tops lists of best Bond films, so... Yeah, yeah. I'll have to watch it at some point. I haven't shed the part of me that is susceptible to those films. Mm. Even when, like, it's easy to pick apart the shittiness of a lot of them. I think I feel like my favorite era is like the Roger Moore ones, just because they're so dumb, you know. That's the era that's kind of most indelible uh, in my memory, because uh, again, a lot of a lot of my experience 
watching movies as a kid was dependent on the stock of, of, of the video shop. Right, and those the, are stock. the less popular ones tended to be there. So, mm. like, we, you'd, you'd more often be able to get a copy of Temple of Doom as opposed to Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm. Um, maybe even uh, Return of the Jedi seems to be always there as opposed to A New Hope or Empire. Certainly Empire was borrowed a lot. And always the Roger Moore ones were there <laughs> constantly. I feel like I've never, like, caught just a week, like, checked uh, Jay's Bob movie out of the video store, though. Yeah, but you, you, you weren't really reared in that era. No, no, that's true. We're like, even like the, I mean, we went to like the deep, like blockbuster all the time. Okay. But also your options for watching things in America is much broader yeah. on like just free to wear television. Like you have more yeah, networks. Sure. You possibly sure. had cable as a kid. I don't know. No, I didn't. Okay. But I, I still think the free to wear canvas was much, much bigger than mm-hmm. in Australia where you've got like. A, a small handful of networks competing. Yeah, probably, probably. Anyway, let's get back to this uh, book. So it's kind of a Bond-esque setup here. <laughs> yeah. In conclusion, <laughs> it's like James Bond. <laughs> I like the rest of the novel. <laughs> of the previous novel. Um, yeah. But we, that, we do know the name. Was, that novel was less like James Bond than this one is. Yes and no. There's kind of there's kind of ways in which it was and ways in which it wasn't. I mean, yeah, there are like goofy gadgets and stuff in the last one. The sadistic sexuality is similar in Hansanto Fleming's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but so we discussed this early on uh, in Scratch One. Um, <laughs> we registered our disappointment uh, about the lack of technology in this book. The thing that Crichton <laughs> yes. is really known for. Yeah, where's the gadgets? And which odds on delivered in spades. And I think that is what makes this book shit. It's the yeah. fact that we don't have the integration of like new and emerging technologies. Uh, why, why, why didn't the consulate, oh man, I feel like you could write this so well. It's like, just have the consulate still think he's Morden and give him like a briefcase full of like garbage that he can like play around with, you know? <laughs> there's like, yeah, there's nothing in here except for like LaSalle's like medical knowledge. There's nothing in here that, that is very, uh, suggestive of Christ's personality except for like the the rig sexism and homophobia i guess yeah given the mistaken identity plot mm. i feel like he should have integrated cloning or something like that into this book <laughs> that would also be good it's not too late but probably it is because although it was like rather like moronically integrated into odds on quite honestly the fact that there is that thread of like this computer program predicting how the heist will go, just electrified everything around it, right? <laughs> yeah, that shit, was, that shit was so funny. Just imagine odds on, like, without that particular element. <laughs> I think it would still be better than this novel. Because there's like, there's, like, weird, like, goofy side characters and stuff in that book. And it did have, like, a straightforward narrative drive. Yeah. It was more in the spirit of, like, an airport novel where you're like, I know what the, the deal is and I'm just following along. Yeah, but you, you're having pleasure reading the, it anyway. Yeah. And also, this book could use, like, a heavy helping of pornographic sex, too, I think. But <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously, he's going for more of a romantic, or, like, even more of a Bond, like, feel of this. Like, this just feels like a shitty Bond movie, you know? It does, yeah. All right. Um, anyway, so, Sal <laughs> leaves... After telling him not to go, uh, Carr decides to make the most of his captivity and uh, goes by the pool. He picks up a receiver, and the maid is at the other end. 
and he decides to order a vodka and some lime. We also learn the name of the mansion or the villa or whatever it is. Yeah, you get a lot of shit about that. And what is the name? What is the name? <laughs> Le Scalpel. Le Scalpel. And the maid observes that Dr. Lissau has a strange sense of humor. Um, when the correct observation would be that Michael Crichton has a bad sense of humor. <laughs> nice, you fucking owed him. Yeah, take that. <laughs> so I did. <laughs> Owning Crichton segment. <laughs> yeah, so he orders... I want to actually be quite specific about this. He, he goes on the phone, he orders um, a drink. The specific drink he orders is vodka and lime, right? Yeah. The maid comes and brings him a full bottle of vodka, four limes, ice, a pitcher, and two glasses. What? She explains that uh, Lissau prefers his guests to mix their own drinks, and they'd be more satisfied that way. Mm. And um, the reason she brought two glasses is that she expected uh, Anne, Miss Crittenden, to be with him. She's not there yet. But he says, no, leave the two glasses, you know, maybe she'll turn up. And uh, he takes a sip, he takes a sip of the drink he's mixed for himself and considers, and the adjective that occurs to him is sweet. So he adds more vodka, right? Where is the sweetness coming from? We have vodka, we have lime and ice. That's it. Yeah, I don't Where is the sweetness, (laughs) Crichton? Where is that legendary attention to detail? Is, is Eddie Crichton coming back for another episode? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I also thought that was strange. <laughs> Maybe they're sweet limes. Hmm. And then uh, how does the chapter end you? Uh, well, as he's drinking the drink that he has just made, that is strangely sweet, a woman's voice is heard. And the woman says... That's it, bottoms up. And who, who is it? It's Anne. That's the end of the chapter. That's the end of the episode. Goodbye. Goodbye.